Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Whether you're adventuring in London or further afield, we know that every great day starts with an excellent night's sleep. And that's exactly what our sponsor on this week's show is offering. Our sponsor is Eve. And Eve makes and sells only one thing, and that is a superb mattress. And Eve is so confident that you're going to fall in love with this mattress that they're offering it to you on a 100-day trial. Just get yourself onto evemattress.co.uk. You're going to be confronted by a very comfortable-looking bed. There's a drop-down menu pick the size that suits you tell eve you want it use the code londonist to get 50 pounds off it'll be with you within three days free of charge and if you don't like it no drama just let eve know within 100 days and they'll pick it up and give you a full refund there's a lot to like about this and eve has got all the bases covered there's even a 10-year guarantee on every mattress so remember our name to give you that 50 pound discount that's londonist as you go to www.evemattress.co.uk to give every day a perfect start you are listening to the sound of london this is londonist out loud i'm in quentin wolf and we're off to a cemetery today we're in the company of the excellent sheldon goodman he's one of my favorite london tour guides he's been extremely popular on the show before a couple of items of business before we get into the cut and thrust of this week's episode mark rickaby has been in touch in response to Uh, The episode last week where Michelle Francis and I were speculating about the oldest street market in London. I challenged Michelle's assertion that the 200-year-old market that she was talking about in Soho was in fact the oldest. Mark Rickaby on Twitter points out that some sources suggest Borough Market predates Berwick Street Market by 800-plus years. It celebrated its 1,000th birthday in 2014. Yeah, that's a bit more like it. In today's episode, well, I thought I'd get in early, to be honest. The context of this will become clear, but there is a moment in this week's episode where I allege that the 1996 Glastonbury was a mud bath. You will be reassured by the level of fact-checking that has gone into this. I have looked that up, and in fact, 1996, there was no Glastonbury. It was 1997 that I was thinking of, which, of course, is the year that Massive Attack and Radiohead and The Prodigy headlined. I struggled to believe that that was nearly 20 years ago. And you could get a ticket for only 75 quid. Anyway, back to London and to West Norwood. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a strong throw from your front door. from South London, from West Norwood Cemetery, where we are looking at the sunniest day I think we've recorded on so far. As you'd imagine, it's tranquil here. Uh, With me is Sheldon Goodman. Hello again. Hello. We're not going to be too disruptive, I think. No, I don't think so. How can you be disruptive in a cemetery, really? You're just going around walking on a fabulous day. Listeners can't see your jacket. They can't see my jacket or indeed my shirt. So that's probably for a good thing, really. I haven't looked at your shirt. um, That's disgraceful. It is, yes. We're at a a junction in the centre of the cemetery. Now, of course, last time we met, we were in North London, exploring your love of... Is love too strong a word? No, I'd say love's fairly accurate. 
yeah, uh, of, of the cemetery scene. What's happened in the six months since we saw each other? Well, luckily we got uh, featured on Global and National Press, which was a real big boost for the blog that um, me and Christina write for. Got a whole load of new people interested in not only the blog, but cemeteries as well, which is no bad thing. And so it's just kind of been up and up from there, really. Kind of working on a couple of tours for Tower Hamlet Cemetery, uh, which I do on kind of a part-time basis for them, and other little things in the pipeline as well. So awareness generally seems to be increasing, which is no bad thing. And the name of that blog? Cemetery Club. Nice and easy. We're at a key fork in the pathway here, the circuitous path, and we've got choices to make, therefore. We do. We are confronted with an absolutely enormous Portland Stone monument, and it was actually built by William Tite. I'll speak about who he is in a minute. And it was done to Gilbert of the Lloyd's London and Westminster Bank fame. Now, uh, he was a fairly important, well, fairly important, massively important banker in the Victorian era, as you can probably tell from the sheer scale of this monument. It's actually, so some things have not changed. It's no, no not at all. It's a, if you're if you're familiar with Saint Pancras, this has shadows of it. Um, obviously, it's not multicoloured brickwork, but it certainly is just as ornate and decorative. He was incredibly influential. Uh, he was 25 years the manager of the London Westminster Bank, and when he died, William Tite designed the monument for him again it'd be like getting norman foster to do your know, kind of headstone and william tight had a lot of connection to this particular cemetery anyway he actually laid it out and he also designed the front gate so again it just kind of carries on the theme of one man's particular involvement with this cemetery so it's no surprise he got this prime spot no no not at all no. and it, you know imagine if you were coming here for the first time which many people did they used to come here you know on the jolly for a nice sunday stroll and you saw this you'd think ah okay now this is the kind of place i want to be buried in and this is the kind of place i kind of want to be seen in too you know these were you know the the slightly alternative to the public parks of the day people used to come here to here and highgate back in you know in those days highgate and west nord were kind of level pegging in terms of prestige and you see monuments like this or the monument over there or the monument just closer to the uh, front entrance and again it's just one of those status symbols where people think this is a very nice place to be which i think actually down the years we've kind of lost not many people consider cemeteries to be a nice place which is obviously why why we run the blog and why we want to highlight big uh, monuments like this some of these larger items on the short distance of path that we've traveled so far from the front gate are bulky Uh, not necessarily i would say that tasteful either the one closest to me and i've I've got nothing against uh, tunisian mosques but it looks like a tunisian mosque it's halfway between there and the moss Eisley cantina yes yes again some people wanted their life excursions to be represented in death and maybe he was a fan of that architecture in life that particular monument was to a man who founded an iron ore mining company so as you can imagine in in those days you know when ships and bridges were being Mm. built out of the raw material he wasn't short of a few bob and obviously in death he wanted to reflect that so and there's an, another couple um, just going down the way there there's one which has four crosses uh, it kind of looks like a, a like a stone tent in a very roundabout way mm. that was built in 1939 for Edmund Maddock and he was a surgeon he actually built that in his lifetime so he saw that being constructed and obviously when the time came he was put in there but again considering that was the 30s not many things were being built like that Yes, the best description I can serve you is footprint is square. Then if you imagine a marquee roof, but as you get towards the top, it becomes itself a square. It's concave, and then it turns up into a square platform upon which is... Well, from this angle, it looks like somebody waving hello, but I'm sure it's something a little more reverent. I don't know, who it, I don't know if it's Britannia or if it's the Virgin Mary. I can't work out. But, um, but she it, says hello. But she says hello, which is, you know, close to the entrance too. Maybe there's a hidden meaning there. I imagine him uh, seeing it being constructed and thinking... Well, that's all very well, but surely we need somebody on the top saying hello. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's just manners, isn't it, really? That's an interesting prospect that you raise of somebody like Foster doing headstones and monuments. We've taken the left path, and just over the high wall we can see terraced houses of... Norwood, and its, its name is derived from the Great North Wood, which obviously used to cover this, this part of the world. And obviously down the years the name became corrupted to Norwood, so this became the Great uh, the West Norwood Cemetery. Given that we're in South London, north of what? North of... Uh, well, it, was, it was a wood that ran uh, across like Sussex, and, um, you know, this is, goes back to a time when most of England was under a forest. 
and obviously the Great Northwood was one of the areas with which this was concerned with. <laughs> this extended up to Scotland? Yeah, pro- probably at some stage, yeah, yeah. How do you see a cemetery when you arrive in one? Are you thinking of it in the same sort of terms as somebody who does street tours, that there are particular points that you're going to get to and, and you sort of string yourself between those, or, or is it a...? Yeah, I'd say that's fairly accurate. Uh, as Again, most of the memorials have had some sort of thought put into them. You know, this is the lasting memorial to that person. The life they had, the house they lived in, probably will change beyond all recognition, but when they're ended up here as you can see on some of the memorials it's forever really and again you just kind of piece together you know what particular stones of interest a name you might have heard seen on the internet or heard in a, a tv show or a podcast and you just kind of string it all together and see what comes up so let's have a bit of that right okay well i can't not a name but i'll say one thing if you just look on our left hand side here you'll see that it seems to be a bit sparse doesn't seem to be many graves now considering that this grave was shut this uh, cemetery was shut in the 1960s you might think well hang on there's clearly lots of space here don't be deceived they are graves there in the 1960s when this cemetery shut it was purchased by the council and initially there was a plan to turn it into an open-air history book which is a lovely idea considering you know the 60s where it was all brutalist architecture and perhaps not the most sympathetic time for things to be restored or remembered. So when this cemetery approached capacity there were concerns about what would happen to it. Like many of the other Magnificent Seven cemeteries of which this is one, when they approached this, this time in their lives they were full. So what do you do with a full cemetery? You can you know there's many things you could just you know bulldoze it start again you could let nature claim it which is one of the things that the original planners of these seven cemeteries wanted in a way because they realised that London would spread out and places like this, well, you know, tranquil, open green spaces would be probably at a premium. And, yeah, so they, they, they didn't know what to do. So in this one's instance, the council stepped in and they wanted to kind of remember the heritage that's here, perhaps as a consequence of what was going on in other cemeteries, I'm not sure. That very quickly faded away and the council was obviously faced with a problem which we still have today remarkably of burial space being at a premium so what they did is they came in here with their bulldozers and their clearing equipment and started clearing graves with bulldozers with bulldozers Mm. and this you can see is the scars of it there are some headstones here at the front which escaped but particularly towards the back there is nothing there is the graves are still there the people who were originally buried there are still there but their monuments are long gone because of that Well, that seems to suggest that they started up the engines, uh, got a few feet, and then somebody told them to stop. Pretty much. People were up in arms about it. They didn't want that to happen. It certainly wasn't in the original remit. By the um, late 1980s, the Friends of West Norwood Cemetery were founded, number one, to stop it, and number two, to kind of protect this space, because a lot of local people had family that were still buried here, and people who would, you know, um, who had relatives buried here and then moved away were finding about what had happened and were absolutely appalled. So it actually went to court. And Lambeth Council were actually found to be acting illegally. They shouldn't have done it at all. And as a result of that, what they did is that they um, put this cemetery into the joint ownership of the council, the Friends and the Church of England. And to this day, all three now kind of work together to manage the cemetery as it is today. One of the stipulations of that court case was to restore memorials where possible. And there's a very robust scheme going on here where family members are coming with photos of their graves or they've got photos from the archives of particularly important people that were buried here and they're restoring them, funds permitting, obviously, to put it back to how it was. Obviously, that's a long, drawn-out process and, you know, there's no quick fix to that. What was the plan? What did they want to do with the land? Uh, They wanted to basically landscape it into a park. You can kind of see their reasoning behind it, but at the same time, you have to respect what's here already. I think simply, it would have been easier to maintain if there wasn't all these stones they had to navigate in and out of. I think it was more for convenience than anything. Again, a lot of damage was done, and let's not forget that this cemetery was bombed in the war anyway. It had two beautiful chapels, also designed by William Tite, which are now no longer with us. They were demolished in the 50s. So obviously by the time the 1960s came, when this kind of open-air history book idea came along, people were kind of quite happy. They thought, OK, well, you know, the damage has been done, but let's put it back together. But lo and behold, another two decades, they had another a fight on their hands, really. But those days are, are behind us now, thankfully. It's interesting when you think of how the prevalent mood of a particular time must bring a a different dynamic to people's thoughts about looking after a place like this. For example, we know that just after the war there was that spirit of rejuvenation. And maybe the last thing you'd really... Well, I don't know, it could go either way. Maybe you wanted to remember in a solemn way those who passed away or maybe you want to sort of put it behind you and move on and and put something fresh in its place. In my experience, yes. I think there was, uh, especially after the war, people thought, let's have a clean 
modern start. So perhaps the, the viewpoint on heritage wasn't quite as strong as it is today. Certainly if that was to happen nowadays, again, it wouldn't even get past that point. People would just stop and go, no, 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 you can't do that. And obviously now we, we live in enlightened times. But obviously back then, you know, it, that was just part and parcel. Maybe that was a, a relic from the Victorian era because the Victorians weren't particularly well known for being... Um, kind of uh you know respectful of what was there already i mean you know let's not forget the metropolitan line when that was being built i mean the, the chaos that brought to london you know we think crossrail's bad metropolitan line you know cut and cover method opening massive trenches in the middle of the street not really paying particular attention to what was there or what wasn't you know again it's it's, it's that victorian ingeniousness i guess that you know i do admire but perhaps again by the time we got to the 1960s it was a legacy of that can i ask you a big question go on uh, <laughs> you can only say yes at this point can't you well, yeah exactly i can't <laughs> say no i can't back out uh, how has our view of death changed and evolved over time do you think i think it is it is it is changing it hasn't changed there's still an awful lot well, i don't think there's, there, there won't be an end point right? no there, no there won't be an end point but i think certainly <laughs> ironically. You know, I, yeah, ironically i think people are warming to the idea now more than ever and again i think it's because of the time that we live in whereas especially after the first world war death was seen as something that shouldn't really be celebrated but you know you, it was a very somber affair obviously but nowadays i think the celebration of life is pervading more than ever and maybe this is because of things like facebook where you can go on people's profiles and see them you know see the profile almost as if they were alive or you can see them alive on youtube the way that we live our lives now is that we're kind of obtaining a very well i suppose it is a very weird sense of immortality in a way Mm. knowing that our pictures our thoughts our tweets however are still being stored in a way that you know most of the people here never had a, had access to they might have had an odd diary or something but you know now we can it's almost like our streams of consciousness are incredibly online now well, we should get into specifics since we're on site where would we be looking for someone who's uh, piqued your interest uh, we're going to head up here you'll see just in the distance there there's like an arch that is the grave of a man called henry wood now one of the good things about west norwood cemetery it's the second cemetery of the seven that were originally opened in the 1830s is that the Friends Association has a very good newsletter and it's it's fascinating reading and they also have a very strong uh, research ethic about them. They want to know who's here, they want to remember who is um, buried here and in one of the newsletters they actually had um, this chap by the name of Henry Wood. Now, I feel I know this name. It's, it's one of those names, though. It's what, there was a, um, a theatre by the uh, Langham Hotel. That was a Henry Wood theatre, but it's, he's got nothing to do with that. This is another one. But this particular headstone, I know nothing of this man, but I actually found a picture of the headstone when it was new, which I'm going to show you now. Obviously, the listeners can't see it, but if you give me a moment, I will get the um, image ready for you. But as you can see here, nice uh, marble arch. Yeah, this is about uh, six feet high. Six feet high. It's covered in ivy. It's clearly seen better days. It's a bit battered. It's a bit worn. But when I came across this image yesterday, that was it when it was new. Well, this is a shining white marble construction about the size of a a large double bed with the arch in white over the top of it and an inlaid uh, area. That's um, that's actually um, metalwork. It's the Tree of Life, and then in it is a uh, shield which says Henry Wood. And obviously in the front of the curbstones you've got a nice little flower bed. And now you look at it today and you think, oh my, uh, what, what's happened here? Time and I think also... Pilferers. When, pilferers as well, exactly. When, obviously when the cemetery was kind of reaching the end of its life, perhaps the, the, the guardians took their eye off the ball. And like many other cemeteries across London and the UK, any kind of ornate uh, metalwork or decoration was robbed away. Well, there's a more serious thing. We were talking about this just as we were getting ready to record, that it's no longer the ornate stuff or indeed uh, just Uh, the metal that's going now. I couldn't believe this. No, um, again, this is news to me as well, and it's frankly worrying. The amount of uh, London stock bricks which are being pinched at the moment from all kinds of places, not just cemeteries and chapels, but from people's front gardens. I saw a picture in an article where someone's front wall, you know, which is probably no higher than anyone's knee, and someone just nicked the whole lot because apparently all these kind of DIY shows are really making people spruce up their houses and London Stockbrick is also a very desirable thing, particularly in London, considering that most of the homes are built out of it. And, you know, thieves are stealing the bricks and selling them on for a pound a brick. I went to St. Patrick's in Leytonstone last week 
and again it's a problem there i think um there was reports that uh, one of the people who worked there apprehended the people involved and they started lobbing you know rocks and bricks at him well it couldn't have been that valuable then well no exactly you know if you're nicking it and throwing it at someone then perhaps that's uh, something entirely but uh, that's just one of the things that faces you know not only spaces such as cemeteries but you know heritage generally as well you know churches are uh, as, as much at risk as anyone else's going back on topic yes let's get back to um, it um so west norwood cemetery um the second one was open <laughs> was that, yeah was that supposed go. to be your smooth segue that was my smooth segue it's about as subtle as a brick which i've spoke about which obviously it all links in getting better it's getting better um now we've got a greek colonnade here we have if you follow me around here what would happen when these cemeteries opened they had a responsibility they obviously had to provide burial space to the growing population of london when we went to hampstead cemetery that was stage two in the cemetery evolution this is obviously stage one and as you can see generally speaking not only in this little section here but around the cemetery the monuments are a little bit grander these were open spaces and people wanted to show off particularly Stay, it's kind of started to wane by the 1890s. I, yeah, well, hold on. Can I nudge you back a little bit? When you when you confidently assert that this is uh, that that was stage two in cemetery evolution, mm. probably I need this pegged down a little more. Firmly. Right. So obviously you had the magnificent seven open in the 1830s and 1840s. This was number two. That was the first wave. I see. And then obviously they weren't enough. They needed to open more. So people saw the successes and the failures of each and every single one, and they started opening uh, more themselves. So um, Hampstead was one of them, opened in the 1870s. But obviously at this stage when it opened, what they used to do, um, obviously they had to cater to a living population, but they also had to cater to um, spaces such as the city churches in the middle of London. Now we'll just take a little walk after this. We'll go and see the um, the parish of St Mary at Hill. But this is the Greek Orthodox necropolis. Now this community was originally based in Bayswater around the Cathedral of St Sophia. And if you've ever been to Bayswater, there's not a great amount of places locally where you can inter your dead. So what the community did is that they got in touch with West Norwood and actually bought a plot for their community to use. And again, this wasn't uncommon. Um, you know, cemeteries like Nunhead and Highgate have very similar setups. But if we just have a look here, you'll see it is almost like walking to another country. We have the grand tombs of Highgate and so on, but here you'll see it really is something else. Mm. You've got the, uh, the Raleigh family. You've got names I can't even pronounce because I can't read Greek. But if we just go through this doorway here, this was a cemetery within a cemetery. And as you can see, the scale is just absolutely enormous. It's still obviously owned by the Greek community today. Now, this um, obviously only had a limited time span that it could be used before it filled up. And I think they opened a successor up in Hendon Cemetery after this one became full. We're standing in the throng here at the moment and the graves are laid out on a much more grid-like system than perhaps in the rest of the cemetery. They are in blocks in reasonably ordered rows and I think the thing that's setting them apart for me is that they resemble much more sarcophagi and uh, there are panels depicting very uh, traditional classical Greek scenes, multiple figures in togas. The statuary similarly reminds one perhaps of ancient Rome rather than ancient Greece. The architecture is certainly more continental this is the chapel of St Stephen, and this was built for the Raleigh family. Um, the elder Raleigh, his son, died in Eton uh, while he was a schoolboy there, and he was so bereft, he uh, built a mausoleum for him here, which we see here. Now, this is not only a mausoleum, it's also a chapel, which occasionally the uh, Friends of West Norwood Cemetery open up for events. And I've been here before where there's been art installations put into the like, doorways of all the mausoleums and stuff. And inside it's got like a, a, like a tiled floor and a gilt floor ceiling or what have you. And as you can see, the architecture clearly emulates the Pantheon in, in Greece. And you've got the reliefs there around the top. Well, this, this gives a lot of the impressive buildings in the city a run for its money, really. It, it, in, indeed, exactly. And also, when you think about it, who, who was being involved in their um, construction? You've got people like Giles Gilbert, um, George Gilbert Scott, who did St Pancras. I think a member of the Scott family did this one, too. But if we just go up these steps here, you know, and it actually it's, it's quite nice to see actually this has been largely left intact. I think a lot of places would suffer from vandalism. But this, you know, this is particularly one part of the cemetery where death is tangible. You can see. If you look down there. And now you're, you're pointing. Oh, well, this is very interesting. So the thing we've just walked past and indeed we're, we're walking back around is a two or three feet tall block. I guess it's about six by eight. As we come around here, we can see where, where there would normally be a uh, sandy or a gravelly bit with some flowers on it. In fact, it's a flight of steps down, and at the bottom there, well, it looks a bit unkempt. 
Yes, this you are literally peering into someone's tomb. Now, I don't know if, if the doorways obviously come away, but you can actually now see deep into the, the vault itself, and you can see the shelves where a coffin would be simply placed. Obviously, no burial here. Just place them on the shelf and leave them be for kingdom come. And for whatever reason, this is now exposed. I dare say something could be done about it fairly soon. But again, this you know, particularly this part of the cemetery, you can actually look into that that hidden side of things which you wouldn't see. You know, there's no closed doors here. You're actually looking into something that's actually a very intimate and private space. You know, which perhaps only you know the family members saw on the day of interment or what have you. I want to ask you about that actually, uh, and it's on the back of reading an article just this morning about uh, urban explorers and rooftoppers and mm. all of those kind of activities where the boundaries are disregarded and the rules are ignored and ventures are had and photographs are taken and I was just wondering how your ethics work in terms of for example an opportunity like this to photograph something that isn't usually seen I I tend to avoid it myself because I think how I would feel if you know let's say I had a burial vault it came open for whatever reason vandalism wear and tear whatever it's only interesting to look at don't get me wrong but I think you know particularly in this bit there are people who still have living relatives and you hear you hear stories like let's say for example in highgate in the years of reckless abandon when the cemetery was just open for anyone to do what they wanted the catacombs particularly were broken into by the slightly more alternative crowd the goths went in there perhaps with their interest of black magic they used to break into uh, coffins and tombs and you know they also used to photograph and kind of just you know interfere with things which they probably shouldn't have done I don't agree with that, but some people, not saying like to interfere with it or anything, but certainly they have that kind of morbid fascination, which is ironic for me saying I run a blog on cemeteries so to have a morbid fascination on something. But I think my interest and Christina's interest and other people who run the blog's interest is more a case of respecting what's there and not disturbing it because I don't think really that that's not the point that's really not the point you know people say oh you know I'd, I'd love to you know break into this tomb why what what would that achieve mm. because at the end of the day the, the ones who pick up the pieces of the family or whoever owns it who have to do the repairs once you've had your bit of fun or you've you know satisfied your curiosity why just appreciate it for what it is these these particularly these monuments here they were built to be looked at not broken into Inside there, that's for the family. Outside's for everyone else. Uh, we're rounding the uh, one of the many corners here. It's undulating lanes that we're well, moving this is, through. This is this is fairly typical of Victorian design. Whereas nowadays, most of the cemeteries, if you're you know if you're lucky enough, you just live in a borough that has one. They're flat affairs. It's all very municipal. It's very functional. Whereas you know these you know when they were new were built to sell. They were supposed to sell an ideal, a romantic ideal. I mean, particularly this part. It's like a, a really big churchyard. You know, you've got lovely flowers here. You've got a grass. You've got mature trees. This is what they wanted to sell to the public. You know, buy a plot here. This is what we want. And to put it on a hill as well. You know, obviously, you know there is a. They say the higher up the hill you are, the more prestigious your standing in life was. And certainly, if you look where the chapel used to be, and it's been replaced by that. 1950s um, construction there you've got some big names up there like you've got Charles Spurgeon the very famous Victorian minister you've got I think that's the mausoleum of Sir Henry Tate of uh, Tate Gallery and Sugar fame people were you know wanting to have these kind of romanticised idyllic settings because you know people just wanted to show off again really they wanted and also they wanted somewhere pleasant and it is pleasant you can't deny that even now well, this is our second trip to a cemetery, second time we've headed up a hill, and whenever I think about westerns, uh, people are always buried up the hill. I'm wondering if this is a sanitary, uh, makes sanitary sense or something. Is there a reason why people get buried up hills? I, I think it's just the prestige. Um, I mean, one of the things that's uh, particularly interesting about this cemetery is that the River Ephra runs through its very heart. And in the 1850s, and this is, I love this story, it's, it's one of my favourites. In the 1850s, one of the things that used to happen occasionally was in the, um, in the River Thames, uh, like the rivermen would find coffins floating in the river. And they thought, who's chucking coffins into the Thames? You know, it's polluted enough as it is without having coffins being thrown in as well. And in one particular instance, so the story goes, um, they had a look on the nameplate of the coffin. And I thought, OK, well, let's see where this came from, because it, it clearly a lot of money's been spent on this and for some reason they've just decided to throw it into the Thames so they looked into it and they traced it back and they traced it back to West Norwood Cemetery so they thought right okay what's going on here then this should have been buried why is it now in the Thames so they went to the gravesite and it was fine it looked it was undisturbed it was you know 
as much as it should be. And I thought, okay, what's going on here? And then, as the story goes, it happened again. And then someone worked out... (laughs) Not the same coffin. Not the same coffin, I'd (laughs) hope not, I'd hope not. Someone worked out what was happening. Because this is London clay, any grave you see here... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The actual coffin is probably nine feet further down. Is it really? Yeah. Because London clay is slippy. And obviously through rainfall, through natural ground movement and so on, the coffins were actually breaking free of their original plots and working their way into the river system. But that's incredibly elastic then. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's only like one recorded instance in which that happened. You know, they're, they're obviously slightly concerned, but that's just one of the things about this site, particularly on the hill. Any grave you see, it's probably about nine or ten feet further down from where the memorial up top is. That's not a very tranquil thought. No, it's not. Maybe that will please the listeners, you know. Oh, you know, who knows what will happen to me after I'm gone? Well, who knows? Now, we're entering an area of the cemetery which is conspicuously further back. I think we've reached the back boundary. Most of the graves here are simpler. The headstones are more modest. So, well, obviously that leads me to suspect that this is where less well-off people were buried, although I'm still seeing some professional titles here. Yeah, let's not forget that this cemetery was bombed in the war. And also this is in an area of clearance as well, as we saw earlier uh, down towards the entranceway. And you'll see that one remarkable survivor that made is this cast iron grave here. Uh, that was actually restored a couple of years ago. And there are pictures of it when it was fairly new and it is literally surrounded by headstones, which have all since you know, been probably put in landfill, sadly. But again, you know, you've got like, little pockets of survivors which are now interspersed with more um, modern burials i hope we don't ever reach a point when the grand designs team advocates paving your house with gravestone like flags i hope not because i see in many a churchyard today they do up their churchyards and they use the um, headstones as paving that drives me absolutely mad i mean what else are you going to do with it if you're going to do up the cemetery yeah i, I get that but I, d- I just interpret that as walking on someone's memory yeah quite so i don't agree with that but i, I suppose it's better than just completely doing away with th- that person's memory I no guess. no I, I think there's there's a problem built into that which is that if you have f- uh, feet going over the top of a piece of carved anything it much more quickly erodes those memories that's very true it's, it's just as as contentious then as it is now i think and obviously now let's not forget again another completely positive thing is that the this cemetery has just been awarded um, heritage lottery funding they've received a grant and they're going to be doing up the um, cemetery with a visitor center more access to the historical side of things and just improving the general uh, layout of the cemetery. There's what looks like a Japanese grave there. Again, you know, people of many different cultures are buried here, whereas in the old days you'd have a um, like a, a Church of England section and the dissenter section. Nowadays it's all very fluid. You know, if it, I think it's more a case of if space is at a premium, you can't really afford to be too picky where you end up, to be honest. And yeah, you know, there's another like Chinese or a Japanese one here, and you just need to look around. Some of the names are quite... Um, that's an interesting... Sorry, I've just been uh, caught um, off guard. There's a wooden memorial kind of in the hmm. bracken. I did read about that last night. They um, they reinstated that in the early 90s, from what I remember. That's Should not... we go and have a look? Let's have a look. This, I think this part... 
is the former burial ground of St Mary at Hill. Now, if you've ever worked in the city, that name might ring a bell because that's a Wren church. And much like many of the city churchyards in the Victorian era, when they were kind of done up or you know, tidied up, a lot of the graves with which they had were kind of moved en masse to other places. And this area here was one of the uh, places that was bought for that purpose. Again, I've, got, I've actually got a photo here. Give me two seconds. I've just realised as we pick our way between the grave plots that my anxiety about stepping on someone's grave, if, if the coffins are capable of travelling, I can't avoid standing on somebody. No. No. no as long as you apologise, I think, then that's... Um, well, I won't know when to apologise. Just, just, just apologise. I'll just issue a general apology. General apology. So, let's have a look. Right, so, this is the plot in the 19... Is it 1930s? Let's have a look. Now, 1960s. I can spot that that fellow there is not, in fact, dead. He's not, in fact, dead. He's very much alive at this point. We're looking at a, a small black and white picture. This is a, yep. And uh, in it we can see several... They look like columns ready for a statuary to be plonked on top. There's a guy standing next to one of them. I think he's pretending to be a column. <laughs> this, is the, this is the actual uh, confines of the mini-cemetery within the cemetery. That's now all long gone. That's one of the things they lost when they redeveloped. But if you look into, the, into this space here, you can see... Rector of St Mary at Hill. See, so the even though the boundaries have long gone, the actual plot itself is still here. Yeah, um, we're, lo- we're looking into a, uh, a thicket here. There are ivy-clad trees. There are uh, thick rhododendrons. It's difficult to see too much. And then here and there, you see headstones and crucifixes peeking out from the bushes. Yep, and they, um, one of the things that um, typifies that this is a kind of little separate section of its own are the monkey puzzle trees which obviously stand out a little bit compared to, like, you know, you've um, got your Leylander, you've got your holly as well, and then you've got these very kind of exotic-looking monkey puzzles here, which were planted just to kind of denote the kind of specialness of this particular area, and knowing that actually some of the burials in here predate the cemetery itself. Some of the people here were buried in, like, the 1600s, 1700s, and then obviously it was used as the parish churchyard for every intent and purpose um, until, you know, obviously, like the rest of the cemetery, it just fell into disrepair and disuse. You know, it's almost like a, a two-for-one deal, really. <laughs> in a cemetery, that's in not what cemetery, you want to hear. Two-for-one two deal. Well, as we turn around, uh, what, what hill are we seeing there? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's Telegraph Hill, and then obviously just over in the distance there, you can see a very tall, like a Dwardian building now. I don't know what it is, like a clock tower of some variety. There's a grave there tipping in a way that reminds me of uh, Glastonbury, 1996. That was a particularly muddy year. That was a particularly muddy... And again, it says a lot about the kind of um, geography of the area. This is very soft ground, and headstones occasionally do go a little bit wonky and a little bit awry. And it's, that's not a new thing as well. You know, if you read in newspaper reports of the time, there was, um, or even books of the time, there was um, a lady by the name of Mrs Holmes, and she wrote a very influential book on cemeteries in the late 1890s. And I presume, I don't know much about her, but I presume she was one of these women who... The, <laughs> she probably was, she was with a name like Mrs Holmes. Yeah, well, exactly. But she was one of these ladies who took a great interest in cemeteries. And so what she did is that she went around all the London cemeteries and wrote about them much like the Cemetery Club does. I mean, you know, if she had a blog nowadays, I dare say it would probably be identical to ours. But she went all the way back to, like, the Roman era, right up until the modern day, which obviously was the Victorian times. And she remarks coming here and seeing that a couple of the headstones were starting to be a little bit wonky. I mean, considering at this stage, this cemetery had only been open for 50 years, people are thinking, oh, well, you know, you know surely, you know, these cemeteries were kept immaculately all the time. No, they weren't. For whatever reason, it might be whoever was in charge of the cemetery at the time wasn't being particularly proactive in keeping things in check, or perhaps money was beginning to dwindle because people weren't prepared to spend great vast amounts of monies on huge monuments and stuff. It's hard to say, but even she said, you know, when she came here, that, you know, things are starting to go a little bit... And that wasn't uncommon. Again, that happened in many of them, like in Brompton and Tower Hamlets as well. We're passing through a particularly affecting area of the graveyard i don't know if it's set apart specifically for this purpose you'll be able to tell me but we've passed uh, the grave born 9th of march 1992 and lived four days and and the next plot along there's a picture of a little fella still in his crib with his teddy bear hmm. and a, a headstone shaped like a teddy bear as well yeah obviously that's you know even that's one of the most unfortunate things, is that obviously death takes you at whatever stage of life you are, even the, the young who haven't really had a f- proper chance of living. Yeah, it's, it's not 
yeah, I, I, I take no pleasure in seeing that myself. Not that I see, take much pleasure from cemeteries anyway. Obviously, I enjoy them as spaces, but that's particularly heartfelt, I think. What, what do you do with... Uh, and don't don't read anything into this. I'm mm. certainly not accusing you of the term I'm about to suggest, oh, but okay. that, that word ghoulish is one that I could imagine being levelled at somebody with an interest in cemeteries. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure how I would define it myself but I, I get a sense that it's taking a pleasure that is slightly inappropriate i see it more as me kind of being a wanting to basically not i suppose you stand up for the people who are buried here you know just remembering their achievements remembering their lives and what they contributed and you know just bringing it to people i, I take no enjoyment from the fact knowing that they're dead or anything like that i just want to bring people's attention to that you know before us and after us there'll be some great people and you know obviously with my interest in research and stuff it's up to me and people like me who share the interest like me or christina or you know or whoever helps out on the blog to kind of bring that to the populace and hopefully people enjoy learning about where we came from who is this christina of whom we've spoken christina is um she started the blog with me we used to work with each other for a brief period and invariably, we'd whenever we met, meet up, we'd always end up in a cemetery. And it was her idea to start the blog. I was initially a bit hesitant towards the idea. I thought, oh, I've got a blog on cemeteries. Who's gonna, you know, who's going to read that? Says me, three years down the line, contributing to it. <laughs> and so she had this idea that you know we go to a cemetery when we could and write about it and the people inside them. So it was from there that it, it just kind of um, kickstarted, really. And we're still doing it today. And obviously, we've got more and more people involved now. But, um, but yeah, she, she, we do it in tandem and obviously with other people as well. And what, what is the model of your relationship? How would you describe how you interact? Um, well, usually, well, WhatsApp, largely. Uh, we, um, you know, she'll say, oh, I've just been to a particularly interesting place. Um, do you fancy coming along? Or, you know, sometimes because our schedules are, don't particularly line up. You know, she, um, she works in the paramedic world um, i work in an office world so so this is a, re- a remote relationship it's a, yeah it, it, again you know it's a very telling of young relationships relationship young friendships nowadays you know we meet up where we can but obviously you know we have our own kind of interests and you know when we've got a time we'll just you know share them when we can it's nice to kind of just like kind of have a wrap-up of, of what you've seen i mean like, like this for example oh now we're looking at an oblong of holly bushes with a space for entry and completely filling this area is a slab upon which has been embossed some lettering. Yep. I can see Thomas Cubitt. Cubitt of the architect fame. Born, f- but no, this is uh, February 25th, 70, 1788. Died December the 20th, 1855. Yep. Now, he is a, he's a name that Londoners won't know, but certainly will be familiar with, because it's he who actually did a lot of the development of Belgravia and Pimlico. He was a master builder. He was the one who they consider to be the one who introduced modern building practices. For example, when he was building Belgravia or Pimlico, unusually for the era that he operated in, he had all the trades on site. He had like a massive, you know, sort of like a ground floor factory, I guess, where, you know, the carpenters worked or the stonemasons worked or the bricklayers worked. And he worked them all together and he project managed. What was going on before then? Basically, people doing their own thing. You know, they provide a service. Okay, right, the carpenters have done their job now. Plaster is in, you come. It was all very disjointed. He brought it all together. And, he, you know, he, he basically invented the modern building firm for all intents and purposes. And as I said, it was he who led the way with Belgravia, which obviously we know is the home of the embassies and stuff. Pimlico, which wasn't quite as arousing success as Belgravia was. It was supposed to be, but it didn't quite work out. But again, you know, he came from a, a very strong family of creative people. His brother designed King's Cross Station, for example. So that's the kind of stock that he came from. And again, he's at the very top of the cemetery. And quite a nondescript part, it's got to be said. But it's very close to where the Dissenters Chapel used to be, uh, which, as you can see, is shielded with this rather terrible scaffolding. But obviously that's way back when. That's where the Dissenters Chapel used to be. This is a mighty odd grave. I should make my description a bit clearer. This is a large landscape-style flagstone, but it's surrounded almost entirely by this uh, three or four-foot-high holly hedge. So, I mean, you'd struggle to, as you heard me, struggling to read it even when I'm up close, but from afar you'll have no idea that it's there. I think originally this had railings, but obviously for whatever reason, when Ah. when it fell into disrepair, they were robbed away, I presume, and I, because holly's quick growing, and it basically fulfills the function of a fence for all you know for all intents and purposes i think they they put it in to kind of as a, as a makeshift plan i don't, I don't know if they, if they intend on keeping it. i think it looks quite pretty 
Um, it's certainly a talking point because you wouldn't expect to find one of the biggest land developers in London to be buried right there. But Oh, actually, let's have a... We're out onto the main path again. It feels like that's a little bit of a back path that we've taken there and we're back out on the main thoroughfare. I suppose we ought to think about wrapping the podcast up at some point. I I just glanced at the clock and far more minutes had elapsed than I imagined. And I guess that's a function of the reduced speed and the slower pace of this place. Again, you you can easily get, you know, lost... But this is the the zenith of a whole cemetery. This is where more or less every single coffin would have come when it was originally brought to the cemetery and placed into one of these two chapels. Now, as I said before, the cemetery experienced bombing and this is where the dissenters' chapel was. Now, this, I believe, has got scaffolding on it because the catacombs below needed to be dried out, I presume. So this is kind of not only to kind of keep, keep people off the site but also just to kind of structurally save it. And then just around the corner there is a modern chapel, which was built in the 1950s, which also has a columbarium in it for cremated remains. Because this is also one of the first cemetery in London which converted part of its use to a crematorium in 1915. So this has been in this sort of shape ever since the bombs dropped? Pretty much, pretty much. And I dare say it will probably be addressed at some stage. But again, I've got a... There's very little left of it. That is what was there before. Oh, crikey. Okay, so we've got a picture here of uh, much more uh, sturdy... It's it's gothic like most of the other architecture at the the bedrock of the cemetery. That's old school gothic as well. That's old school gothic. You know, it's got old finials and, you know, London brick probably as well. I think this particular building, they um, compared it to King's College in Cambridge. And yeah, you, that, see, that you, see, you see photos of this area in the time and literally this chapel, you know, emulating Cambridge is just towering above everything else. And it's such a shame that it's no longer here. You know, it's just kind of been replaced with a, a low-level structure on one part and then the other chapel is just like a 1950s equivalent and obviously it doesn't really hold a candle to it. But changing times, and it was obviously that's what was reflected at the time. So if we look through the... Where have we gone there? Right, this... Oh, now this is a particularly interesting one here. You are gesturing towards your monolith. No, no, not the monolith. No, this one. well, then my double entendre is redundant. Again, walking up grave. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, well, hang on, I need to follow you. That one. Whoa. Now, this is the Baron's mausoleum. Now, I believe he was a merchant of some variety, and that was built by Edward Barry. Now, Edward Barry was the son of Sir Charles Barry of the Houses of Parliament fame. Now, he took over his father's work when he died, um, so he oversaw the construction of the, whatever needed to be done to the House of Parliament to make it complete. And again, he had a sideline in designing mausoleums, and as you can see, that is a particularly beautiful example, uh, and it's recently been restored. Last time I was here, it was um, in a very sorry state. It had a tree growing out of the roof. Um, it did, yeah. It was, it was, um, it was not. It was, it was impressive, but it certainly was past its best. But if we just go a bit closer, I'm going to attempt a description. But this is quite an odd object to essay. So we start off with a rectangular block, five feet high, built on a large solid plinth. I guess it might be twelve feet, fifteen feet long. Then on top of that face, we have an obelisk, and around the obelisk are Turkish pillars. On the corners, we have learned-looking people in statuary, stroking their beards, and around the uppermost part of it, which is kind of forbidding looking really it's a, a black angled sculpture it seems to stop the sunlight and around it are what at first glance i thought were gargoyles but are in fact angels their wings curled round and they're each holding a shield and i found it a bit creepy it's if you look at it you can see especially with the uh, the mosaic tiles just going around the top you can see that this is of the world of the houses of parliament mm. it has it has shadows of it i mean obviously you know the, the um the guy who designed it, the father, his father designed the Houses of Parliament. Um, but but I, th- I think there's also a whiff of Constantinople there. I, I, again, absolutely. It's the influence of the continent influ- um, kind of rubbing off on our architecture. Um, and the, the friends of uh, West Norwood restored this particular mausoleum. And also, um, a living relative came forward. He uh, found out about it um, from Australia, where he lives with his daughter. I think he actually has the burial rights to it now. And they kind of them and English heritage as well they all kind of like pulled together and restored it to the state that you see in today which is pretty much as it would have looked when it was first new you know some of the other monuments you see are a little bit weather worn or a bit battered but that's pretty much as it would have looked the last stone was put into place it's certainly impressive that comment you just made though that brought up an interesting prospect so burial rights clearly if people are around to assert rights then that makes life a little easier but after somebody's been buried in a plot what rights exist around that 
it, it depends. When these, when this place was new, you bought the plot forever, and that was that. Obviously, with the pressures that we face nowadays with um, urban expansion, the rights to a plot are decreasing. I think the current life cycle is 37 and a half years or something, if I remember rightly. Me- so, meaning what? That's how long you have the plot for until the authorities can, if they want, reuse the grave. But that's not even... No, that can't be right. I think what they can do... If I'm, led to, if I'm led to believe this correctly they write to whoever ha- is on record for the grave and they say look would you like to retain the grave as it is and if you say yep fine they leave it alone if they don't hear from you after a period I think that's when they can uh, they can like take you out of the grave bury you deeper and then open up the grave for someone else hmm I feel disturbed by that yeah again it's pressure helping demand with people who want burial in a kind of supply that's very rapidly drying up no I get that and of course if we're talking about a grave from 400 years ago then Mm. that makes perfect sense but some of the graves we've looked at today a great many of them in fact they're very likely to be still very much in existence the people who had the 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 misfortune to have to bury those people the modern ones fine we talk about graves here for example you know i mean i dare say in this this patch here there's graves that have been opened in about you know 100 years or so we're looking at essentially a blank bit of grass you can just about make out the traces of edges yeah you can just in the turf yeah these would have been brick vaults like these ones here but obviously for whatever reason they've just kind of fallen into disrepair this one here you can see he's actually lost the top stone so, you know, if, if that top stone was there 100 years ago, you look down, you'd see coffins. Uh, but it's obviously been filled up. For whatever reason, it might have been bomb damage or, again, just wear and tear. Again, it's, it's these kind of spaces that they would seek to, if they could, and places like the City of London have started doing that, where they're doing grave reuse. And obviously that's a highly contentious issue because a lot of people think, oh, well, I don't want to go in someone else's grave. Some people have no problem with it. Some people do. So, again, it's perhaps, you know, addressing that belief that you know a burial space isn't necessarily forever no it does it totally screws the idea of uh, resting in peace and maybe this is why cremation is becoming the more dominant way that people are choosing to kind of deal with themselves once they've passed 70 percent of people who who pass away now are cremated so again maybe these places days are to an extent numbered who knows but then you've got places just down here like you've got the columbarium where you know you go in and there's people in little pigeonholes in, in really nice ornate little urns and stuff so maybe that's the future rather than you know obviously people can't afford to do great big monuments like this anymore and certainly as we saw in Hampstead which was kind of in the transitional stage where things were becoming a little bit more low-key maybe you know in the future we'll just have big buildings which are just full of columbariums for example who knows there's something about that though and uh, of course it's down to personal choice but the idea that there's a trend in a particular direction just for convenience and because of property prices that when that goes hand in hand with the violence of the act of cremation and of course nature itself is violent and what happens to somebody after they're dead we we know all about that Mm -hmm. but there's something in terms of how one deals with a death the idea of some sort of return to nature and some sort of gradual transition that's a little easier to bear it is but then i mean another thing which i I read about was um you know obviously these places were and you know to an extent still are cemeteries are places where people go to you know be remembered to an extent but Mm. you know you got people like charles dickens who thought these places were just nonsense you know, he said, you know, what's ashes to ashes about being put in a lead-lined coffin? Because that's not the natural order of things, is that's it, true. really? And you've got people in, in, you know, big things like this or in, in shelves. You know, if people want that kind of way to go, actually, if you think about it, we're not even doing that back then, let alone doing now, really. But No, well, my argument is, is undercut somewhat by the fact that I probably want to go up and smoke myself. How about you? Buried. Really? Yeah, buried catacomb. A catacomb? Mm. You, can, have you got access to a catacomb? Not yet, I'm working on it. You, if anybody should get access to a catacomb, I'd hope so. I'd hope so. Um, I, I, I actually, do you know what? I've not, I've not actually really done too much uh, research into it. I don't know. I don't even know if it's allowed anymore. I dare say I'd probably have to be put in a lead-lined coffin. But who does that nowadays? I think plumbers. Or, I, I, I have no idea. I don't know. Plumbers. Somebody who has access to kind of wheel, welding equipment, I presume. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, I dare say if you, if I was to be put into a. Um, into a catacomb they couldn't just put my coffin on the shelf they'd have to wrap me up oh i see what you're saying that's bait isn't it being put in anything made out of lead yes i dare say well oh no i don't even want to have this discussion (laughs) does that happen um not to my knowledge i don't know well let's Um, not say anymore yeah (laughs) i want to put ideas in people's heads so this is the oh i think it was open oh brilliant right okay so yeah, this is the modern chapel, which actually utilises the original chimney that was built in 1915. So you can see the brickwork there. That's a very shallow 
interpretation of what was here before. Right. So you see the modern one here. And then if we just... I think we can go in through these doors. Let's have a look. Columbarium. And this cemetery in particular, especially um, in spring when the trees have this lovely pink blossom on them, got the brickwork here, you've got the really vivid green of that bush there, you've got the blue sky and it just all works well together I think, it is lovely I'll show you, this is a, another before and after shot which sadly the, the listeners can't really I hope, I hope you're enjoying all these before and afters <laughs> I mean the easiest way to enjoy the before and afters right. is come on one of Sheldon's tours of course. Exactly, quite, so here we go that there that there and that was what was there before. Now, that there, uh, the first that there was a small rectangular memorial. To the Wright family. I, I, only, I only say small in the context of some of the enormous stuff we've seen here. The next that there was an obelisk of similar proportions. And just behind it uh, was the old squat Gothic chapel. And behind it now is something that looks a lot more like a drive through church in the Midwest. Yes, pretty much. It's not to my cup of tea, but obviously in the 1950s, I think things were just put up. You know, obviously it had a function to do so less of the ornate construction that went into the original building let's just get it built and we have something to work with mm. just notice there there is um you'll see like a pink so you've got one tomb here with the upturned torches to our left here got yeah. a tree angel another tomb then another tomb there with like a pink granite roof on it mm. that is the tomb of sir thomas gabriel who's lord mayor of london you know his descendant peter gabriel indeed Indeed. Cue me not finding a Gabriel lyric in time to be amusing. <laughs> Put it in the edit. So. Yeah, if I could just get that plane to fly over again when I think of it. <laughs> that was an editing joke. About three people got that joke. <laughs> Which is three more than are going to be enjoying a Peter Gabriel joke. Yep, yep. It's obviously now one of the more prevalent ways of, um, of commemorating and, and dealing with the dead is cremation. And here in West Norwood there is a dedicated columbarium, which is like a catacomb in a way, but above ground and with little niches in what's essentially a, a big rack uh, with individual urns and boxes containing the ashes of those who've been cremated. Now, the last time I was here, you were actually able to have a kind of walk around and see the actual people's names, and sometimes little grave goods are placed. You know, like one uh, guy had like a can of Stella next to his urn. So nice little things like that, you know. I, th- I think that they're actually more reflective of the person than, say, flowers, I think. But it's currently shut at the moment. Um, I believe there has been some vandalism going on. I think p- potentially some um, ashes have been interfered with, shall we say. Do you mean, do you mean next? I, I believe so. I believe so. So I think for the safety and the reassurance of the families, they've locked it off and access is only to those who actually have people interred in that particular columbarium. We have come to the end of... No, this is the phrase that tripped me up the last time we recorded. If I say we've come to the end of our time, that has entirely different connotations. I think it's also apt we have come to the end of our time. It's a metaphor for the oncoming end that we will all experience. Let's get metaphysical about it. No, I don't think I'm getting <laughs> metaphysical about it. I've got things to do today. <laughs> a reminder, Sheldon Goodman, of your good works online. Uh, well, you can find me, find our writings, me and Christina, and, and amongst others, at cemeteryclub.co.uk. We're also on Twitter as Cemetery Club, and we're also on Instagram as thecemeteryclub.co.uk. So, and we're also on Facebook. So we're on most social media, so please do, if you, um, if you share my, my love of these spaces, then do get in touch. And I, I hope you've been boning up on your Catholic symbols, because there was a very disgruntled comment in on the... Uh, on the last podcast, uh, somebody said, ah, blooming idiot, he didn't recognise that symbol. I can only apologise. He's making a symbol of his own. Yeah, quite. <laughs> well, no, that's, that's the thing, though. I'm, I'm an eternal student. I don't know everything. I don't profess to know everything. So Good. Well, you fit, fit right in on this show, then. Yeah, there um, we go. <laughs> Second time anyway, so, you know. And Until we meet again, Sheldon Goodman. Until we meet again. Thanks very much. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Sheldon Goodman. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm M. Quentin Wolfe.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.